And we are working through the book of Hebrews. So if you have a Bible and you want to get there, Hebrews 1 is where we're going to be. If you don't, don't worry. We're going to put all the relevant stuff on here um, as we work through it. I, I do have to say, I do have to say, um, uh, Saturday nights at the Bitzer household is crazy. Uh, exuberant, energetic, full of explosion and fun. And so, um, you know, on a typical Saturday night, it's my wife and I um, overflowing with an in- kind of an intensity of fun that you just wish you could be a part of. We sat there and we watched Dateline together, right? And uh, yeah, so somebody else has a nice date night Saturday night. Um, Dateline. And uh, you know, one of the pressing conversations every single week for us is um, my wife will say to me as we watch Dateline on Saturday night, and she'll say, um, so what are you going to wear tomorrow? Right? Because it kind of matters. It makes a difference. You know, don't, don't want to embarrass myself. And I said, well, you know, I've got that white shirt from Mexico. Right? We did family photos then. I think I'm going to wear that. And she goes, oh. She goes, well, um, I don't think you're supposed to wear white before Easter. But if anybody says anything, you just tell them that you're a grown adult. And what I thought in my head was, I don't think there's anybody who's going to confuse me with a fashion icon. So, like, I think we're all safe. And so if my white shirt is distracting to you, too bad. Uh, Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1. Here we go. Um, Hebrews 1. Um, let, let me read to you where we're going to start, verse 4, and, and then we're going to talk. Hebrews 1, starting verse 4. It says this, he being Jesus, became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Okay, so let's pause there for a second. We're working through the book of Hebrews, and we don't know a lot about the author or um, where he's writing from or even the people he's writing to, but we know, based on a lot of contextual things, that he was a Jew, and he's writing to a bunch of Jews, right? He was a Jew writing a bunch of Jews. And, and we know from things that he says that these Jewish people were under great strain. They were under great pressure. Um, there was a lot going on in the world around them. There was a lot where they felt out of place. They felt unwanted. They felt unwelcome. You, you got to imagine, um, to be a Jew in the first century was already an odd lived experience because the Roman Empire had absorbed basically the known world. And when they absorbed the known world, they um, began to mesh everybody together so that the predominant culture became the Roman culture, except when it came to the Jewish people. In fact, the Roman government gave them certain liberties that they didn't give to anybody else because they knew that there was something so unique and they were so committed to being this, um, as scripture would use the word, this peculiar people. That they would look different, that they would act different, that they would dress different, that they would talk different, that the rhythms of their life would look different from every scenario, from, from you know, uh, the way they dressed, the way they worshipped, to the way they worked. That it seems odd to us, it seems unusual to us, um, but the fact that they took a Sabbath, that they only worked six days a week, was culturally shocking. But then... Inside this group of people that feel like outsiders in the Roman Empire, you have this even smaller group of people who have chosen to follow this Jewish um, carpenter who claimed to be 
the Messiah. And now, by that affiliation, they're not even welcomed amongst the peculiar people that they're a part of. And he knows from interactions apparently he's had with them that, that, that some of them are beginning to bend to this cultural pressure. They're beginning to feel lonely and isolated and rejected and outside, and they're exhausted. And there's this temptation when we get tired to revert, to go back to the things that felt comfortable and felt good before, um, whether it's religiously or it's you know, Oreos at 11 o'clock at night when you're tired and you want to revert back to the things that feel comfortable and feel safe. And so he begins this letter. He begins this letter with trying to explain to them, and the argument throughout the whole of the book of Hebrews is him trying to tell them that Jesus is better than all those other things. He, you know, at the very end of the book, he's going to say that Jesus is better than the, the sacrificial system. That Jesus is better than the, the high priest. That Jesus is better than the promised land. That Jesus is better than Moses. But he begins in this spot that feels maybe a bit unimportant or insignificant to us. He begins with saying Jesus is better than angels. For us, that doesn't seem like a really hard argument, but for ancient Near East, for Jews in the first century, they developed a really robust ideology around angels and the significance of angels. For a lot of us, um, the, the most that we think about or the robustness of our ideology of angels could probably be summed up in this meme. It says this, if you can't read it, I have a feeling my guardian angel looks like this often. And for us, when we think of angels, this is kind of the extent of the image that we think of. We think of, um, you know, little babies with white uh, wings flying and floating around, you know, maybe protecting you when you're doing 90 miles an hour down I-5, holding your mouth shut when all you want to do is cuss out someone, right? This is the extent that we think of for angels. But in the time that he's writing, the people he's writing to, Jewish thought had created this really robust, really complex um, uh, ideology around the role of angels. And uh, Josephus, right? Um, Josephus is a Jewish historian. He's probably the most significant Jewish historian. Uh, he was a contemporary of Paul. Um, and I poured through um, all of his volumes of the Jewish history so that I could find this one quote for you, right? Because that's how much I love you. I'm kidding. I, I, I didn't. I just Googled it and it came up. Here we go. Um, it says this. And we ourselves, and for ourselves, we, talking about Jewish people, have learned from God the most excellent of our doctrines. And if it just paused there, if that was just a period, we'd all go, amen, right? God's spoken, God gave the law, God gave um, uh, commands, he gave prophecies. We have learned the most excellent of our doctrine from God. But then look at what um, Josephus says. And the most holy part of our law, the, the most central, the most sanctified, the most set apart, the most unique, the most important parts of our law, look at what he says, by angels and ambassadors. You see, in Jewish thought by the first century, it developed a recognition that it didn't seem possible that when it talks about God coming and speaking to people like Moses, that God could have done that. Because the rest of scripture makes really clear that in the presence of a holy God, a sinful people get destroyed. 
And so they begin to develop, okay, this is extra biblical rabbinical thinking, but this is just, this is what's going on in the culture they live in. They begin to believe, and there were some textual things in the, in the Torah that would indicate towards this. They began to believe that um, every time God came and spoke to someone, whether his people or an individual, that it was actually an angel speaking on behalf of what's called agency, that he would speak in first person as God on behalf of God. And this was a normal cultural practice in the ancient Near East to speak with agency. And so they began to believe that when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he spoke with God, that actually what he spoke with was an angel. That, that when, when the burning bush, in fact, when the burning bush, um, in, in Acts, we're going to look at it in just a second. In Acts, um, the, 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 the disciples in the book of Acts say that in the burning bush that an angel spoke to Moses. And, and you see, what they began to believe was that angels were so important and so significant and so special and so unique that they had this unique ability. In fact, the word angels means messenger, that they could be the unique messengers of God and they could speak on behalf of God. They could say, I will deliver you from the hands of Pharaoh. And they would speak as God. I will make a covenant with you. And they would speak on behalf of God. And so you see this, not just Josephus, this extra biblical guy. I mean, look, in the book of Acts, uh, they're making an argument for why Jesus is who he says he is. And, and, and the disciple says this, you have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Hebrews, just a little bit later in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is going to come back to this. And he's going to say, the word spoken, he's talking about the law here. The word spoken through angels proved unalterable. You see, the tension that the early Jews had to deal with was they'd received a message. They'd received a law from God. Angels had shown up and declared to the people, this is the law of God. And then this other messenger shows up, this Jesus guy. This itinerant preacher who ends up getting killed on a cross, which was the most shameful way that he could have died. This guy shows up and he says, well, I've got a message. I've got a greater message. I've got a bigger message. I've got a message that, that consumes and fills up, fulfills all of this message and is something even more. And so which messenger do you listen to? Before you even deal with the messages, which messenger has more validity? Angels who came from the throne room of God and spoke on behalf of God or this itinerant preacher who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah? Which do you listen to? And there were some in their camp that were beginning to wrestle and were beginning to drift back towards the teaching of the angels, the law a thing that was good, Paul makes really clear in other scripture, a thing that was good and right and important, but the writer of Hebrews says a thing that's in, inferior. Look, look at what it says, Hebrews 1, uh, verse 5. He says this, and again, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. So the question is, which messenger do you listen to? Do you listen to Jesus or do you listen to the angels? 
And the writer of Hebrews is going to say this really plainly. He's going to say, um, you listen to the one who has greater authority. And, and look at how he portrays Jesus, right? And Jesus, uh, the gospels portray him over and over again, right? When Jesus is baptized, he's baptized and he comes back up and a voice speaks and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then the writer of Hebrews says, this has been the title that Jesus has always carried that he has been a son. And so, uh, but look at how he compares the angels. Do you, do you listen to the message of the son of God or do you listen to the angels? He says this in verse seven, if you're following along. And regarding the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, out of context, you might go, Whew. I mean, that sounds powerful. That doesn't really sound like it settles the argument. I mean, Jesus is the son of God, but angels are wind and fire and captain planet, right? Anybody? I think that's a unique age demographic right there. Wind and flames of fire. And, and wind can be powerful. Um, I, I went to school in um, what is uh, colloquially called the armpit of America, um, Joplin, Missouri. You ever been there? No, you haven't because nobody goes there. You don't, you don't get to Joplin, Missouri on purpose, okay? There's nobody that's like, you know, I think I'm going to go vacation. Joplin looks like a great place, right? And so I went to school in Joplin, Missouri, and uh, it's the Midwest, so they start school really early, right? So it was like the second week of August, the third week of August, and I'm a freshman. I got lost and ended up at this college in Joplin, Missouri, and, and I'm in the dorms, and all of a sudden, it's like 10 o'clock at night, all of a sudden, the fire alarm goes off. At least I thought the fire alarm went off because if you're in a building and you live on the West Coast and it starts going bah, 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 and lights start flashing, that is a, a fire alarm. Can we all agree before I make a fool of myself? Can we all agree that that's a fire alarm? Okay, so I'm on the third floor. So you do, well, I went to elementary school, right? What do you do when there's a fire alarm? You get up calmly, you walk, you don't run, you don't know that you walk slowly back out of the building. And we had this emergency exit out in the end of a building, so we walk out there. You don't take an elevator. We walk out there. I go walking down the exterior of this building down these, these steps. It should have occurred to me that nobody else was with me. A dorm full of dudes, a fire alarm's going off, and nobody else is on the emergency exit. But I just thought, you know, as <laughs> smart as I am, I'm just ahead of the game, right? And so... I, I walk down, and I walk out, and then what do you do when you get outside the building? You walk away, right? You get away from the building, because it's on fire. That's why the fire alarm went off. So go walking away, and it was peculiarly warm, and it was a little windy, and it was raining a little bit, which I didn't dress appropriately for, which I thought was a little bit odd. If you've ever lived in the Midwest, you know exactly what's going on in this moment, if it's windy and stormy and really humid. And all of a sudden, someone opened the door and they said, Sean, what are you doing out there? And I yelled back, the fire alarm, what are you doing in there? And they said, Sean, it's not a fire alarm, it's a tornado alarm. Well, this is a bad place to be in this moment, <laughs> right? Because wind can be powerful. Wind can do incredible damage, right? And you may read this and you may be like, well, Jesus, son of God, but man, angels, they are powerful like wind and like fire, they consume things. 
But in the context of this passage that he's quoting from the Old Testament, it's really clear that that's not what he's saying. In fact, what he's saying is exactly the opposite, that angels, um, it compared to the eternal preeminence of the Son of God, angels are just like a breeze that blows and is here, and as soon as it blows, it's gone. That the wick of a flame only has to be blown out. The wick of a flame only has to be blown out by the smallest little breath, and it's gone. He's saying, look, 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 who do we listen to? Do we listen to the angels that brought the law, that spoke on behalf of God, that, that exist like just a breath of wind? In fact, this word here, wind, is actually the same word that they would use for breath that are here just like a breath and gone with the next inhale, or do we, do, that are like a little wick of a flame, or do we listen to the one who descended from the throne of God, who is the Son of God, who is God himself, is the argument he proposes. So if Jesus is the one we're supposed to be listening to, that his superiority, that his significance is, is, is so um, beyond compare, that his greatness is so much more than the angels that it can't even be imagined or fathomed, what was his, what was his message that he was trying to encourage weary and tired and beat up and exhausted followers of Jesus who just wanted to quit? Hebrews 1, 5, again, look at what it says. It says this multiple times, this little passage. It just says this. You are my son. The good news of the message of Jesus, the greater law, the gospel, the life that gives us strength to endure, the message that transforms and redeems and gives us hope is a message of sonship. Of sonship that Jesus is the perfect, unadulterated, righteous son of God. And then it says this, the writer of Hebrews, jump forward to two, right? It's in Hebrews 2 verse 11, it says this, both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, right? He's the one who makes us holy. And those who are made holy, look at this, are of the same family. The good news of the gospel you see, um, the, the, the law was, was good. It was right. Paul says it was right, and it was good. It was like a tutor. It was helping us understand the way. But the law, the, law requi- the, the, the benchmark of the law is admittance into a community based on your works. God's kindness and mercy is all over in the law. But in the end, you can be made clean if you sacrifice this animal in this way. You can be made righteous if you confess all your sins and you place your hands on the goat and you push the goat out of the community and eventually push him off a cliff. You can be righteous if you don't touch these things and you touch these things and you don't eat these things, but you eat these things and you practice these rhythms. Then if you do all the right things, then you can be a part of this community. But the message of Jesus, the good news, the superior message of Jesus is something different. The message we're so tempted to believe so often is a message similar to the message of the angels. That if you do the right things, that if you don't cuss, that if you don't watch those shows on TV, if you don't yell at people, if you're not a jerk to a loved one or a child or a parent or a coworker, that if you're a nice moral person, then you can be in this club. But the message of the gospel is different. 
The message of the gospel, the message of Jesus is a message of sonship. If you've ever been around anybody who has been a part of adopting a child, you know how much effort a child puts into an adoption process? None. You know what the role of the child is in the adoption process? It's to show up. And hopefully, hopefully if it's like a little baby, just like don't mess your diaper because it's a small room and it's warm and we're all stuck in here together, right? The message of the gospel of Jesus is a message of sonship, of adoption. Not that by your hard work, not like God isn't up in heaven and he's like, whew, Man, you know, this like heaven NBA, the heaven basketball league has been real rough this year. Like our team's not doing real great. I really need to get some taller, more athletic people on my NBA team because um, uh, these angels are really whooping us up, right? So I, I need to find someone. They got potential. They're going to be real tall. They're going to be real athletic. Look at that. I'm going to pick him on my team. No. The message of the gospel has nothing to do with what you bring to the table. It has everything to do with the goodness and the graciousness of a father who opens his hands, opens his family, and opens his heart to adoption, that you might be called sons and daughters of God, not because of anything that you've done, but because the kindness and the graciousness of the one who is our father. So my question to you today is this. It's two-part. So if you're weary and beat up and exhausted and find your heart tempted to want to return to things of the past, to comforts of the past, to places of the past, to rhythms of the past that God's called you out of, to fix your eyes on our older brother, our older brother who set the example, who set the way. Hebrews 12, I'm convinced Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2 are the central text of this book. And look at how the, the Living Translation, um, the Living Bible translates part of Hebrews 12 verse 2. It says this, I love this. Keep your eyes on Jesus, our leader and instructor. Keep your eyes on Jesus, our older brother who set the example, who's led the way who's shown us what it looks like to live in life and goodness and hope and mercy and grace and joy. Fix your eyes on Jesus. The other translations say it this way, our author and our perfecter of our faith. So my question to you today is if you uh, have become exhausted and tired in your faith, you, maybe, maybe even worse than that, you've just become apathetic. Like you just don't even really care where are your eyes they fixed on Jesus, a good, gracious, older brother who's led the way, who leads the way for us, who walks with us, who guides us in the ways that we should walk and the ways that we should live. There's the second question for you, and this is maybe a little bit more uncomfortable because we have to deal with it. John 13, 35 says this. Let me just show it to you. John 13, 35. So here's my question. How's your love for your brothers and sisters? Jesus, these are Jesus' words. He says this, by, all, by this, all people, 
right? The, the word there, ethnos. All the nations, all the world, all the cultures, every culture, the thing that will permeate beyond national boundaries and cultural boundaries, this, by all this, all the world will know that you are my disciples. If you're moral people, if you're kind people, if you don't cut people off in the, in the streets, if you don't cheat on your taxes, if you vote the correct way, I didn't say that. By this, every people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How's your love for your brothers and sisters? Here's the thing about loving brothers and sisters, right? First of all, we're all busted people. Let me ask you the question this way. Um, When was the last time you were inconvenienced by a brother or sister in Christ? Because that's, that's where the rubber meets the road. It's easy to be like, oh, I love brothers. I love all Christians all over the world. I love them all. But when was the last time you had to sacrifice? You were uncomfortable. It was unpleasant. It cost you something. It cost you reputation. It cost you time. It cost you money. It cost you somebody else's opinion of you. When was the last time you were inconvenienced by your love for brothers and sisters in Christ. I've got a brother. I've got two brothers. I should say that publicly. I have two brothers. One of them lives in Tennessee. Why he lives in Tennessee, I don't know. You can ask him, but he lives in Tennessee, right? If my brother called me at the end of service and said, something has happened in his life and he needs me to be there, I can tell you that for the first time in maybe 20-some years, I would miss the Super Bowl because I would be driving to the Portland airport, getting the first plane I could to fly to Nashville, to rent a car, to drive through the night to get to his house. At whatever cost it take me. Why? Because he's my brother. Because I would gladly, gladly, joyfully be inconvenienced if it meant that I could walk with my brother, if it, meant that I could ca- if, I, if it meant that I could do what Scripture tells us to do as brothers and sisters, to carry our burdens one with another. So the question is this, if the message of Jesus is a message of adoption, that he is the Son of God, and because of him, he makes us righteous, and he invites us to be sons and daughters <laughs> of God, and that the world would know, the thing that will transform the world, that over human history, over time and geography and culture, that will transform the world, that will display the fullness of who God is, and magnify his goodness, is our love for one another? How you doing? Does, does, does your love for brothers and sisters exceed in greatness in the way that Jesus is so much greater than the angels? Does it exceed your loyalties to geography, to politics, to theology, to ideology, to preferences, to your comfort? By this, the whole world will know the good news that they too can be sons and daughters of a good and gracious and merciful father. That they too can be brothers and sisters, not because of the work that they've done, not because of the effort that they've put in, but because of the graciousness of the father they too can know. If his people, 
his children will love each other with the same kind of sacrificial, humble love that led him to leave the comfort of his throne to come to be abused, to be mocked, and to be crucified, to demonstrate his love for us. Who is it? Where is it that you need to choose to be inconvenienced so that you might demonstrate the fullness, the goodness, and the glory of God's mercy that he's called you a son or a daughter?